As volatile as U.S. stock and bond markets have been recently, emerging markets have had it even worse. Emerging market stocks are currently in one of their longest bear markets, with the MSCI Emerging Markets Index down over 30% from its February 2021 peak. The cause of this poor performance has a lot to do with China and its regulatory crackdowns on global technology franchises and the negative impact that zero COVID has had interrupting economic momentum. But I think we often forget that China isn't a monolith. And while China is also a major trading partner to nearly all the other emerging market regions, the broader emerging market complex is, or should be, much more than just China. You know, investors can still find growth inside and outside of China within emerging markets, which is one of many reasons why I think this is a very interesting time to be talking about emerging markets. This is Markets in Focus from Raymond James Investment Management. I'm your host, Matt Orton, and I invite you to join me and my colleagues as we discuss the latest trends and developments driving the markets. Visit us at marketsinfocuspodcast.com for additional episodes and insights. Today, I'm lucky to be joined by a pioneer in our industry, Kevin Carter, who I think will provide you with some very interesting and tangible ideas and reasons to be excited about emerging markets. And just bear with me, I want to go through his bio just so everyone can get a good sense of his background and why we're so lucky to have him joining us. Kevin is the founder and chief investment officer of EMQQ Global, which is an investment management and research firm focused on the emerging markets and frontier markets technology sector. And while he considers himself a value investor, he's collaborated with Princeton economist and indexing legend Burton Malkiel for more than 20 years. Their work began in 1999 when Kevin founded eInvesting, which was a pioneer firm in fractional share brokerage and was acquired by E-Trade in 2000. And in 2002, they co-founded Active Index Advisors, which is a pioneer in direct indexing, and also acquired, and this time by Natixis, in 2005. Since then, Kevin and Malkiel have launched a number of indices focused on China and emerging markets, uh, with Kevin founding EMQQ Global in 2014. So I am very excited to have Kevin join us today. And without any further ado, let's just dive in. So Kevin, maybe we can start by spending just a few minutes on the very basics. What is technically considered an emerging market versus a developed market or frontier market country? And how are companies, and by extension, and influence their respective countries' weight added to the index? Sure. Well, thank you for having me, Matt, and thanks for the introduction. You know, as it turns out, there's actually no official definition of what an emerging market is, and there's a number of different organizations that classify countries in that way. When we talk about investing, the index, if you will, the benchmark for emerging markets is the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. So if we're going to you know, look at where most people are benchmarked. That is the definition, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. And basically the the way that countries are classified, the main way is by, you know, what's the per capita GDP, right? How, How much money is everybody making? And to be a developed market, 
you basically have to have that number be at $25,000 or more. And if you're below that, you're going to be either emerging or frontier. If you're in the, you know, 6,000, 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 range, that's sort of the sweet spot for emerging markets. But, you know, you do have countries like India, that, which have GDPs per capita of less than 3,000 that are emerging. So there's other factors that go in, including currency trading and other more technical trading elements. And, and this is something that may be in the news more and more in the investment news soon as Korea, um, which has long been considered a developed country by a lot of people, uh, as MSCI grapples with how to uh, treat the uh, Korea situation. Great. And then, you know, how, how do companies get added to the index? Because uh, I guess at the end of the day, that's the company weights that then ultimately determine the country weights within the broader index, right? Sure. So the, the broad index is they, they uh, the MSCI, the FTSE. Importantly, the FTSE index is not that important in many ways, but it is important because the Vanguard, uh, which has the largest emerging markets ETF, that fund tracks the FTSE index. But the, the, the main way they get in is that the database says that they are an emerging market stock. And, you know, every country gets put in the database with a country code. And usually that country code's accurate. And, and, and you know, it's at, least, it's at least accurate in terms of where their headquarters are. It's not necessarily accurate in terms of where their revenue and business is, which is a problem, an increasingly big problem in emerging markets. But the MSCI index includes, you know, I, I think it's, you know, top 85% of the market cap of all emerging markets. And of course, the, they have a list of all the countries and, the, you know, China being the biggest, India. And if you wanted to think about it by region in terms of the percentage of the index, which also generally corresponds with the population weight and the economic weight, this is about 60% in Asia story. So it's, it's China, Southeast Asia, India, uh, that's 60% of the story. It's about 15% Latin America with Brazil and Mexico being the biggest part. And then the other 25% is spread all over the place. South Africa, mid the Middle East and North Africa, Eastern Europe, uh, Central Asia, Kazakhstan, places like that. So that's that's what it looks like on the map. But in terms of the companies themselves, you know, if you're if you're headquartered in emerging markets and you're publicly traded, as long as you're one of the largest ones, you'll be included in the MSCI index. Great. I think that that's really helpful background. And I'll tie into kind of the, the next area I want to touch on, which is performance. Uh, because like I alluded to at the start, the performance of the broader emerging market indices has been volatile, to say the least, over the past you know five plus years. And more often than not, it's underperformed the U.S. Toward the end of last year and really into this year, we're finally starting to see international developed markets outperform. But performance at the EM index level has lagged. You know, I want to get your perspective why you think now is an interesting time to be looking and investing in emerging markets. Okay, well, let me first talk about the indexes in emerging markets. And when I say the indexes, I, I mean the, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, the FTSE Emerging Market Index, but also the single country indexes. And, and this was, you know, one of the first things I learned about emerging markets. So, you know, Matt, I think we talked about this before, but I, I got involved with emerging markets 17 years ago when my partner Burton got 
uh, you know, quite interested in China. And I had a bunch of people that had read about Burton's research on China and they had asked me, you know, can I help them invest in China? And so my immediate response was, sure, let's let's look at the China ETF. And so I asked our portfolio managers back then to give me a list of all the companies in that fund. Um, there was one China ETF 17 years ago. It was a, the first and only China ETF back then. And I assumed that's what we would use to get the exposure. And I asked for the list because, as you know, I'm an Omaha person and I don't care what the name of the fund is. I wanted to know what the businesses are that we're going to become owners of. And so I, he asked for the list and, and, and Burton explained to me that when I got the list, I was going to see that it was all government owned banks and oil companies. And that didn't sound very good. But then he went on to explain how these you know, government owned banks and oil companies worked. And essentially they, they, they're not there to grow your, your, the value of, you know, your stock holding. That's not their main goal. It's not even on the list. And the China ETF was 80% invested in those companies. And, you know, in Omaha, investing is really simple. Earnings is what makes companies value, right? You make profits for the owners and that's what makes people want to own you. And the way you grow your value is by growing those profits. And if, you know, 80% of the companies are systematically not trying to do that, it didn't really make any sense that that's how you would invest in China. Now, if we look back over the last 15, 16 years, the China economy has grown by, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred percent And the return of the China ETF, the original China ETF, is negative 30%. So you've had this incredible story of economic growth, but if you tried to invest in it by buying the traditional index, you lost a, you know, a good percentage of your money. And now the, the broad MSCI index isn't as bad as the China index was, but it's still about a third in state-owned enterprises. And so you know, these, are, these are troubled businesses. And, and then you also, in emerging markets that you don't really have so much in developed markets, you have these legacy multi-generation family controlled companies and there might be four different publicly traded businesses and they they do business together they own shares of you know cross share ownership and the chable in korea and and then of course you have the oligarchs in russia so the problem in emerging markets from the time i got involved i could see it it's the index itself it might be a good way to track the performance of all the publicly traded companies, but if you want to make money, it's, I don't think, a very good way to invest in. It's proved that uh, to be the case with its essential, you know, complete lack of any return in the last 15 years. Yeah, that, that is really interesting and helpful context. So then if, if you extend that a little bit, Kevin, so, you know, where, where did you find, obviously you're focused on technology, so that's clearly been an area you found opportunities. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, what that technology opportunity looks like right now across EM, whether it be in China or in India or other countries. So, you know, as I tell people about my you know, 18 years in emerging markets, there's really two things to know. The first and most important thing is that when you take the whole thing apart and look at it, the thing that's emerging are six and a half billion people that want stuff, right? You've got, you know, 85% of the world's people 
And they don't have the things we have. They want them. They want more and better food, more and better clothing. They want, you know, heaters and dishwashers and appliances. They want to go to movies and take vacations. They want an automobile or some other type of vehicle. And they want their kids to go to Harvard. And that's the story. I didn't have to figure this out, by the way. This was well-documented 17 years ago when I got involved. And, you know, every major consulting firm and investment firm has a 100-page white paper with a lot of charts and graphs showing you that there's a huge wave of people out there that are coming into the consumer class. And McKinsey calls it the biggest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism. So this is a big deal, and it's what everybody should be focused on in emerging markets, and it ultimately becomes the foundation of this technology story. The second thing about emerging markets, I already told you, the index itself is terrible. If you want to make money, you you can't expect it if you're using the traditional broad types of approaches that have disappointed people and I think will continue to disappoint people. And by the way, I would add, Matt, you're likely familiar with the term value trap. I think that emerging markets, if you use the index, they've become the biggest value trap on the planet because... Time and time again, people look at emerging markets and they say, look at this. The the P.E. of the MSCI Emerging Markets Index is 10 and the P.E. of the S&P is 20. So it's half price and the economies are growing twice as fast as ours. So I'm getting twice the economic growth. It's half the P.E. multiple. How can that not be a bargain? And so. This is the problem with, uh, I don't have a solution for this problem, Matt, but this is the, the index itself is the problem in emerging markets. But going back to the, the consumer story. So, you know, it didn't take me long to realize that, you know, if you wanted to invest in emerging markets, if you were, you know, an Ivy League endowment and, you know, like David Swenson at Yale, you could do a lot of things to invest in emerging markets. You could start a private equity fund in China with, Chinese alumni who, you know, had worked in the endowment and do things like that. But most people, and certainly financial advisors, were limited to, you know, ETFs, mutual funds, etc. And when people would ask me, what's the best emerging markets ETF? I never told them to buy one of the, you know, China products that I had launched with Guggenheim, which Invesco now owns. But I would tell them to buy, uh, you know, the emerging market consumer-focused ETFs. And there were emerging market consumer focused ETFs. And if you believed McKinsey, just buy that and you'll own the 30 largest emerging market consumer stocks. And that's what I told people for years. And then it was nine years ago that a friend of mine called and said, hey, what's the best emerging markets ETF for my three-year-old daughter? And I started to tell her to buy the emerging market consumer version. And then I realized that consumption was changing. It was changing largely because of the smartphone. And now it wasn't as clear to me then as it is now, but but basically what's happening with technology and emerging markets is a very big deal. And if you you know want to simplify it, it's basically three trends that are sweeping the planet, three so-called mega trends that you know, I've been part of and my family has been part of for generations and likely years as well. But most of the emerging markets are just getting started. So those three mega trends that are happening are first that consumption wave, which I mentioned, we, 
you know, I, myself, I had plenty of food as a child and we went to Disneyland and I think we went to Hawaii once or twice. My parents had cars and we went to movies and, and my brothers and I were the first ones to go to college, but, but most of the world's just getting involved with that. So that's the first mega trend. Now, when my friend called me that day, nine years ago, I answered her call on my iPhone, my first iPhone, which was sitting on my car seat next to me. So I had a smartphone back then, but it was pretty new to me. I'd maybe, you know, maybe had it for a year and a half or two years, but I could already see how it was changing my consumption and my family's consumption. And my family had been going to the Target store four times a week. And all of a sudden those numbers started to go down. And I, I knew the name of the UPS driver all of a sudden, Mark. And so I could see that that smartphone was changing what was happening at, at my house. But what I didn't appreciate was that, you know, most of the world, they didn't have a computer before. I mean, I had a computer for 20 years before I got a smartphone. Well, the reality is that most of the world has never had a computer and they're getting their first computer today. So the second megatrend is the computer. But the, the vast majority of the world will never know a desktop computer they will know an Android-based smartphone that costs $60 brand new. So that's the second mega trend, something that, again, I, I had access to a computer in 1988 when I got to college, right? My roommate had an Apple computer that we wrote white papers on and so forth. But so the computer is the second part of the story. And then what's happening is that, you know, when these people get that first smartphone, it's also giving them the internet for the first time. I got the internet in 1995 on a telephone line with a modem in San Francisco, and it's certainly gotten better since then, but most of the world's never gotten wired. And so not only are these billions of consumers showing up, they're getting a computer, they're connected to the internet for the first time, and to magnify the whole thing, these people don't have the consumption infrastructure we think about. They don't have, first and foremost, a credit card or a debit card or a bank account. And they don't have a, a, a car and they don't have a Target store to go to if they, even if they had a car. And so these people are leapfrogging uh, what we think of as you know traditional commerce and they're more digital than we are. And it's created what I think is the fastest growing sector on the planet today, if not ever, frankly, in terms of revenue growth for public companies. So when you then triangulate that, Kevin, so I mean, so you've got these three mega trends, you know, there's some very, very specific areas where there should be a ton of, of growth and opportunity going forward. How do you then narrow that down? How do you identify the specific, you know, industries or companies in which that that are going to pay you those dividends over the long term? Sure. Well, I think that it's, it, frankly, Matt, it's pretty simple. We've already seen it happen, right? We, we we know what happened in the United States. We know the FANG stocks took over our lives and ultimately our stock market. And so the way to think about this is in three waves. Uh, the first wave was the United States wave. So if we go, you know, really high level and a little, it always sounds strange to talk about this, but if we, if we, step back and say, okay, when in the history of the world did human beings first get personal computers, like in meaningful numbers, 
And when could those people then connect those personal computers to the internet via a cable? And when could they then open their computer and on the computer they could open a browser and then they could go to a website and they could do some kind of business. They could buy something or sell something. Basically, that started in the year 2000, right? I mean, I had a computer before and I had the internet in 1995 and I probably, you know, bought something on Amazon in 1997 or eight. But in terms of like, when did this really get going? Let's say that was the year 2000. And what we saw was this 15-year S-curve of growth as the FANG stocks took over our lives and our economy. And that started on PCs. It moved to the smartphone as the smartphone showed up. That was the first wave. China, the biggest emerging market, was the second wave. China was basically right behind us. Call it 2005 to 2020. And you saw the Chinese super apps and a lot of other large Chinese companies that have mostly gone public you know, here in the United States, you saw them become giant and really dominate the emerging market uh, indexes. And this is what's unique in the emerging market story. They weren't just companies that were social networks or e-commerce. Once they got 100 or 200 million people for e-commerce or gaming, then they began to get the money on the phone because people didn't have bank accounts and to pay for their products they wanted digital payments, so these Chinese internet companies, the giants, introduced mobile payments, and all of a sudden they became the bank. And so, imagine if you know the the, the largest U.S. e-commerce retailer that everybody uses. Imagine if they also had your checking account and your brokerage account and your car loan. That's happening in emerging markets because. The bank accounts and the traditional banking never took root the way it did here. But China was that second wave. And you saw these, you know, Chinese platform companies. Basically, you can call them technology companies, but in a smartphone-centric world, they digitized and scaled up companies within themselves in healthcare, which are now public, in entertainment, which are now public, in food and groceries, you know, the Whole Foods of China, which is a highly digitized business called Hema, will likely end up going public at some point. And they also digitized the money. And so that was the second wave. And when we look back at the the revenue from the emerging markets internet sector and its incredible growth rate over the last decade, 80% of that was, was from China companies. And, you know, China has 1.3 billion people. And while China might be an emerging market in a traditional sense, when it comes to smartphones and e-commerce and digitization, China's the most developed country on the planet by a mile. I mean, China really is the Jetsons and their e-commerce market, China's e-commerce market is four times bigger than all other 45 emerging markets combined. So it, it really is on its own league, but Now the third wave is coming. The third wave of the internet consumer is coming and it's going to be the biggest part of it. Um, There's five and a half billion people that are just getting started with computers and the internet. And that's India, that's the rest of Asia, that's uh, South America, that's Africa. And I think the next decade, we're going to see a huge amount of growth in those areas. 
and so yeah, you mentioned India. For any, anyone who listens to me, I talk a lot about India as well as a large investment opportunity. You know, since we're running a little shorter on time, I want to make sure I ask you a question on India because you've mentioned a lot of the uh, the technology build out and infrastructure, digital infrastructure. But what about physical infrastructure? Clearly, to support growth in India, that's going to be, I would think, a meaningful opportunity. What are your thoughts there, Kevin? I am a huge believer in India in the next 10, 20 years. I think everything is in place there. I think they have a foundation, uh, an infrastructure that includes multiple layers. First of all, India has, you know, they've had a technology industry for 50 years. Um, The Infosys, the Ypros uh, of the world, these are publicly traded multi-billion dollar companies that, you know, date back decades. So they've got that going. If you look at the, the technology talent on the planet, India has by far the most robust, you know, well-educated technology people. Two-thirds of our immigration visas or work immigration visas go to Indians. Two of those Indians that started on temporary work visas, one of them runs Google and the other one runs Microsoft now. So there's no shortage of proven skills and talent in the Indian you know, ecosystem, the physical infrastructure, this is where China pulled away from India 17 years ago. When I got involved, India and China were pretty close on most economic measures, but China was able to do the, uh, you know, extensive um, physical infrastructure, build out trains, ports, etc. And India, because of its, you know, democracy had a lot of bureaucracy and it never really got going and was sort of flat footed. But um, Prime Minister Modi, who's now in his 10th year in India, uh, is very powerful. He has a huge approval rating and he's all in on bringing the country up to date. And the, they have a trillion and a half dollar infrastructure plan that's extensive. And I was in Bombay in March and it felt almost exactly like Shanghai did 17 years ago when I first went there. So the physical infrastructure is going, that's trains, that's airports. Uh, it's physical, you know, seaports. Now, having said that, India is going to get a lot of jobs from this, you know, move to be less dependent on China. But but China still has the seaports and the ports can't be built quickly. So India will compete. They'll get more manufacturing jobs, but it's going to be hard to displace China. But the, the most important thing that India has, and this wasn't completely clear to me until recently, and I strongly suggest people take a look at this. India has a digital public infrastructure that they built, and that's a kind of an abstract term. But essentially, the government initiated several policies and programs going back to 2010. The first one, Adahar, the foundation, that's what it translates to literally, was a 12-digit national identity system. There was no national identity system in India, and less than a half the people born were even reported to the government. And so it's kind of hard to have a formal economy if nobody, you know, can prove who they are. And they wanted to launch this basically, you know, like a social security number system. And they tapped uh, Nandan Nilkani, the founder of Infosys and chairman of Infosys to oversee this project in 2009. And he insisted that they digitize it and that they not just issue a number, but that they capture biometric information, including fingerprints and an iris scan. 
so that every human could be tied directly back to the number. And they it was voluntary when they launched it. And now there's 1.3 billion people in the country on that. And what, now again, it was I knew they did it. And I, you know, it made sense to have people in the system, but I didn't quite, uh, you know, appreciate the power of that system as the world digitized. And what they did soon after they launched it was they introduced another layer where anybody, now this is a largely unbanked society, anybody could walk into a bank if they were part of the system and put their hand down and look at a camera and instantly open a bank account. So all of a sudden you've got 1.3 billion people in the system and with bank accounts and they built a number of layers on top of this, a, a payments layer where anyone can transfer money to anyone else with no uh, no friction. And as an example of how powerful this system is, Reliance Industries launched the first 4G mobile network back in 2016. And when they launched it, they said, we'll give you six months of unlimited free data and you'll always have free voice. And they had a very ambitious goal, which was to get 100 million subscribers in the first 100 days. Now, back then, in, in, in India, to get a mobile connection, whether it's a, a flip phone or a smartphone, you need proof of identification. And that meant bringing power bills to the phone store or other proof of where you might live or be. And it took several days before they would approve you and give you a phone. When Reliance Geo launched their Geo Digital Network with their 100 million person goal, they attached the sign up to Adahar, the digital identification system. And so people could walk in, put their hand on a screen and look in a camera and in three minutes, get a smartphone and walk out the door. And they reached the 100 million subscriber goal. So now you've got 500 million people on Geo with the lowest cost of data in the world. And now in the last three years, the the whole economy has gone from paper-based, not in the system, not taxed to digital and online and the mobile payments numbers are exploding. And I don't think we quite understand yet the power of this platform. They've built this India stack, but it is pretty clear it's going to pay a lot of dividends. Yeah, it's pretty incredible when you think about it and just the scale of numbers and the sheer population and what more there is to come. And as our listeners know, I, I always like to conclude with with what are the potential risks? And so I want to ask that to you as well, you know, near term, long term, what would you summarize as the largest risks to this very exciting growth story? Well, you know, there's all sorts of risks. Obviously, you know, the, the broader story of all emerging markets, internet companies, you know, China is the biggest part of that. And there's all sorts of noise and fear and risks around China. The things that people should not worry about are the things that they have worried about for the last two years, which are the delisting risk, which, you know, never, people should have never really been afraid of that. But that was a, a risk that went away. And then, of course, the, you know, China tech crackdown, which people worried about, which to me, having been involved with China and understand it pretty good. I, I never thought that was a crackdown at all. I just, you know, a lot of tech companies, including ours, are, you know, in, uh, in the crosshairs and paying fines. So the, the risks, though, you know, to China are just the ongoing tension between the United States and China. You know, some people think that Taiwan will become a, 
a, a real flashpoint. I do not share that opinion. In terms of the India story, you know, which I've been pretty heavily focused on recently, as you know, I'm struggling to find the real risk. I, I'm asking all the people that seem like they should know better than me, and some of them are telling me that I'm, we're, you know, the world's underestimating India's growth. But in terms of the the things that are obvious about India, this climate change is a real problem. I mean, South Asia, India, that that whole area has a lot of water, and there's been flooding, and there's you know already a lot of soggy land in the southeast part of that area and so as the you know sea levels go up that's a risk india has a really bad heat problem right now the uh, delhi is you know some people are worried that the uh, that part of india could become uninhabitable because of the heat that uh, is uh, forecast to be at least plausible there at some point in the future so there's a lot of risks we've got wars and uh, going on right now. And uh, so, you know, the world's a scary place. Emerging markets are a, a volatile place. But uh, I think that, uh, no, you know, no matter what happens, there's a one directional move towards a smartphone based world. And while we've been in that world for 10, 12, 13 years, 85% of the world's people are just getting started. And that's going to happen for a long time. That is perfect way to end this. I mean, this has been a fascinating, enlightening discussion. I definitely want to, you know, go further into detail, you know, the next time we have you. But Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much to our listeners as always. Uh, And until next time, take care. Thanks for listening to Markets in Focus from Raymond James Investment Management. You can find additional episodes and market insights at marketsinfocuspodcast.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, I'm Matt Orton. Podcasts are for informational purposes only. This channel is not monitored by Raymond James Investment Management. Please visit marketsandfocuspodcast.com for additional disclosure. This material is a general communication being provided for information purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from Raymond James Investment Management or any of its affiliates to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and you should not rely on it in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and make their own determinations together with their own professionals in those fields. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not reliable indicators of current and future results. Past performance does not guarantee or indicate future results. There is no guarantee that these investment strategies will work under all market conditions, and each investor should evaluate their ability to invest for the long term, especially during periods of downturn in the market. 
Investing involves risk and may incur a profit or loss. Investment returns and principal value will fluctuate, so that an investor's portfolio when redeemed may be worth more or less than their original cost. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against loss. 